0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. I'm Abby. And I'm Margaret. We're very happy to have Margaret guest hosting this week. She's very knowledgeable in the subject area. Uh, This week, we have Anne Richard. Um, She's awesome. But before we get into a little bit more about her, uh, make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod. Please be sure to follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And lastly, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at
1: flyonthewallpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We are so happy to have Anne on the pod today. Anne Richard is a graduate from the School of Foreign Service and she served as the Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration from 2012 to 2017. Previously, she has worked at the International Rescue Committee, the Peace Corps Headquarters, and the US Office of Management and Budget. Great. And let's welcome
0: Anne to the pod. Anne, Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today.
2: Thrilled to be here. Thank you.
0: Um, So just let's get started. So you've worked with many uh, government agencies and nonprofits, including the Office of Management and Budget, the State Department, the Peace Corps, and the International Rescue Committee. Um, But as a graduate of the SFS, Hoya Saxa, uh, (laughs) did that inspire you to go into public service and the nonprofit sectors, or did something else motivate you?
2: Yeah, I was attracted to Georgetown because I grew up in a small town on the eastern end of Long Island, and I wanted to get out and see the big world. Uh, There wasn't a lot going on. We didn't even get television from uh, New York. We got it from Connecticut across the Sound. We were so far out on... Long Island, we were practically mm-hmm. part of New England. Um, so I wanted to see the world, and that's why I was fortunate enough to get into the Foreign Service School. And I found that some of my um, classmates you know, were from overseas or had traveled or had lived overseas, and I was really chomping at the bit to do that. I was really attracted by the idea of um, getting out in the world and helping people. And one of the things that happened back then that in retrospect, is a little mind-blowing is the fact that I went to the State Department one day, um, and I must have seen it in the newspaper. I know I got a subscription to the Washington Post to my dorm room. Uh, And I went and listened to Senator Kennedy talk about uh, programs being put in place to help Vietnamese refugees. And it's very strange to have, later in my career, been responsible for refugees in that building um, but it, it's an example of sort of what you can come in contact with as a Georgetown student.
0: That's awesome.
1: So our next question is how is your experience switching between government and nonprofit work? Is it difficult to move between those two environments or did you feel like your mindset had to change um, based on where you're working?
2: I do think you have to be an adaptable person to move between those worlds because they are different culturally. That sort of bureaucratic culture that grows up in offices is is very different. Inside the State Department, for example, you have a large bureaucracy that has a lot of people working on related issues, so it's very important that you work collegially with other offices and you anticipate that there'll be overlap and other people's concerns and equities are taken into account as you uh, shape uh, policies or uh, policy approaches uh, or work on programs. Um, When I became the Assistant Secretary of State uh, working on refugee programs, it was essential that we develop a really good Relationship with people at AID who also worked on humanitarian programs. And uh, my counterparts over there and I worked really hard to make sure that our staffs worked well together. If they don't, it's kind of a disservice to the public uh, because they're not getting their taxpayer dollar if people are wasting time sort of fighting with each other. Every now and then, um, you know, inter- uh, governmental rivalries are over important issues, but ideally the senior people fl- uh, work out, you know, a uh, path forward and uh, people work very collegially. In the In the not-for-profit sector, I found that there was much less hierarchy, uh, less bureaucracy. You sort of had more liberty to um, do things, which when you had really good staff, it meant you could be creative and get things done a lot done with smaller groups. And uh, but it also meant people could get up to mischief, uh, you know, and go off on tangents uh, that were not <laughs> without much oversight. <laughs> so you know, different personality types might feel at home in one or the other area. Um, and it's not that one or the other is better. I mean, What was important about working in the U.S. government was the authority that comes with working on U.S. official foreign policy and the U.S. having such an important role in the world. And on the flip side, working in the not-for-profit world, you know, you could get things done quickly. You could be nimble. Uh, You could speak on behalf of the vulnerable. Uh, and you could focus in on an issue without worrying so much about the trade-offs that uh, someone in the in the bureaucracy of the official U.S. government would have to.
0: Um, great. So now um, switching to focus more specifically on your role as the vice president of government relations and advocacy at the IRC for almost a decade, uh, what was the focus of your work there?
2: Well, when I started at the International Rescue Committee, it was during a period of transition for a lot of uh, do good non governmental organizations, I think. In the past, well intentioned people who wanted to make a difference in the world would sort of all pitch in and try to do good. And, you know, these were people who, like the board of the IRC, included people who were not really experts on international. Um, engagement but I wanted to help refugees and the the transition was to a greater professionalism I think in the relief and development world where there was much more of an emphasis on people uh, getting jobs in these organizations not just because they wanted to do well not just because they knew someone but because they actually brought talents and skills to the job and that there there was more of an insistence on um, careful thought going into the design of programs and much more measurement of uh, what programs accomplish and so what I was trying to do was to not just run an, uh, an office uh, on behalf of my uh, Manhattan-based colleagues that had relationships in Washington. I was trying to get the entire organization to do a better job at advocacy on behalf of refugees, displaced people, and other vic- victims of conflict. And to do that, I needed everyone to understand how they could be advocates, how they could speak up on behalf of vulnerable people, how you know they were well-placed in some instances to uh, rub shoulders with visitors. uh, If they were out in a refugee camp, if they were running a program in a major city overseas, if they had visitors that were congressional delegation or UN officials, or if they just were sitting on an airplane and turned out next to someone who was a relative of a UN official, that they be prepared to deliver some of the key messages very consistently across the board uh, that had been developed by IRC experts. So it was a great time to be working there. Um, The IRC Today is a much bigger, stronger, more well-funded organization, Um, but I feel like I contributed
1: to that. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have a most memorable experience from your time there? Is there anything that really jumps out when you think about something um, from your time?
2: You know, I was able to travel to, uh, what, relief workers called the field and so I went to some pretty far-flung places that were not on the usual Rick Steves guidebook uh, (laughs) locations Um, you know I traveled along a river uh, with the governor of a Congolese state in his speedboat um, and the river went between Zambia and um, you know far far eastern Congo um, and greeted people all along the river and that was a really bizarre uh, place to end up Um, and at the same time, you know, very important um, location to try to uh, get some work done to help those people. And of course the only other foreigners around were the Chinese uh, construction crews uh, really interested in building roads and getting to the mines so uh, having uh, international aid workers present also showed a sort of different side of the of the outside world and then I also went into um, Burma I've been there several times it's also called Myanmar but I went in a few months after the cyclone had um, cyclone Nargis had hit in the Irrawaddy Delta area and to meet the people who had uh, you know done so much locally to recover to be inside a country that had really been closed off to the outside world. These are some of the places you end up uh, that are just so fascinating and memorable.
1: It's really interesting. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, so how did that experience at the IRC lead to your work at the US State Department when then President Obama appointed you as Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration?
2: Well, what was uh, useful for me I think uh, in doing the job was that I had an understanding of how the U.S. government worked from having worked um, 17 years inside the U.S. government already working on uh, funding for relief and development programs. And then I brought to it also this background of explaining to people in Washington how the relief community worked, the importance of helping some of the world's most vulnerable people, and, and explaining how um, U.S. taxpayer dollars could be used to really make a difference in the lives of people who uh, were fleeing for their lives. And so uh, I, I was really happy to end up in that job, that really, for me, that was a dream job. And I felt that I was had mastered some skills that were very useful, understanding budgets and money, understanding Congress and how it works or fails to work, uh, speaking in plain English about government programs and about international activities. These were all things that proved useful in the job.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds really valuable.
1: So now we're gonna transition to a couple of questions about your time as Assistant Secretary of State. Um, our first, or your, also your opinions about the Bureau of Population Refugees and Migration. So in July 2018, there were 48 former government officials and humanitarian organization heads that signed a letter to Secretary of State Pompeo, as I'm sure you saw, to not cut um, PRM from the State Department. So in your opinion, why is it necessary that PRM should remain within the State Department as opposed to getting moved to DHS or USAID, and what is the unique value of this department that you headed?
2: Well... No matter where you put the office, the State Department has to be engaged on refugee crises because refugees by definition have crossed an international border. And so there's obviously something wrong in the country they're fleeing, otherwise they'd stay home. And there's a country then that has taken them in and has either treated them well or treated them less well. So ideally, what happens is whatever is prompted them to leave in the first place, persecution, war, some kind of a threat to them, that will be resolved and they'll be able to go home again. But we know that that doesn't always happen. And so trying to get the conditions so that they can go home again or they can stay in the place to which they fled or they can be brought to a new third place, um, that requires diplomacy. That's, you know, you can give people all the humanitarian aid in the world and it will not change their legal status, their living conditions uh, very much. And most of us uh, really you know, do want to go home again. Uh, you know, sometimes refugees are seen as a threat, as potential terrorists, as potential criminals, and my experience is, by and large, refugees are normal people. They're just families who want to live in peace and be unmolested and have a future for themselves and their kids, like, like, like all of our families. And so uh, one of the sad things about the last few years is that they have been so um, maligned by politicians in the U.S. and around the world
0: Um, so switching gears a bit to more the work you did when you were at the State Department. Um, you crafted the September 2016 Australian-US deal to resettle refugees from Nauru and Manus Islands into the United States, which was necessary due to the abysmal conditions for asylum seekers on the offshore processing centers, and I've actually been studying this a bit in my class, so very interested, but, uh, what was the most unexpected challenge you had to face when you negotiated that deal?
2: So I was a leader of the team working on uh, creating that deal, and we reported to Heather Higginbottom, who was the Deputy Secretary for Management Resources at the time. There is no one in her job right now at the State Department. There's no one in my old job at the State Department. And so I just point that out. I mean, this, this was key to have senior level backing for what we were trying to do. The thing that surprised me, I guess, Was that for a long time the US, Canada, and Australia were seen as the leaders on helping refugees. And so to engage with Australians and the people at the embassy, I thought were really, you know, um, very nice, warm hearted, smart, capable diplomats, um, to engage with them and then to have them, you know, undertaking something that really made them bad guys. That for me was, uh, that made me uncomfortable. I really wanted all of our three countries uh, and certainly Australia along with the US to be working to help refugees around the world. So the Australian picture was not black or white. They They were doing some very good things through UNHCR's official program to resettle refugees. They were taking steps to help particularly women who were victims of violence to get into Australia to start their lives over, but they would not allow people they had placed on these detention centers on these South Pacific Islands to ever enter Australia. So one of the proposals that was put before me was, don't uh, make a deal with Australia. This will continue to put pressure on the Australians to eventually allow these people to come to Australia. And my thinking was, What's in the best interest of those individuals? And the answer for me was get them out of there as soon as possible. We heard horrendous stories about these detention centers in Nauru and um, the nation, the South Pacific nation of Nauru and in Manus Island, which is part of Papua New Guinea. And so we did have this deal. The deal before it had gotten very far, the Trump administration came in. And the whole, um, and it was very hostile to refugees, so it wasn't clear that the deal would actually be carried out. The good news is they have kept to the deal, and 500 former detainees have now been resettled in the United States. And these are bona fide refugees. I've met some of them. They're, they're completely, their personalities, their their the skills they bring, the courage they have exhibited is very much in line with all the refugees who've come to the U.S. over the years, you know, more than three million refugees since the Vietnam War era. Mm -hmm.
1: Sounds like really rewarding work. I'm glad that the deal is still (laughs) being carried out. Um, Our next question is more broad about the status of refugees today. So the Refugee Convention of 1951, as you know, defines five protected grounds for refugees, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, and membership in a particular social group. Do you think that the definition of a refugee in international law should be expanded beyond those five protected grounds to include new categories, or do you think that um, in our current political climate trying to renegotiate the definition of a refugee could prove counterproductive? Um, Well,
2: your question shows that you've done your homework and you understand uh, the people that the convention was put in place to protect. And the convention was really based on people who fled in World War II. You know, if you think about um, people who are fleeing because their religion, like Jews who were, um, you know, threatened by the Nazis and and murdered by the Nazis in World War II, or people fleeing fascism, people fleeing communism, um, they all fell into this definition of a refugee. And so what it leaves out are people who are fleeing criminality like people um, fleeing the criminal gangs in Central America, they don't fit neatly into these definitions. Different judges say different things. Some say yes, they're refugees, some say no, but an argument has to be made. Uh, Similarly, people who are climate migrants who are losing their homes because of uh, uh, changing climactic conditions, uh, they don't fit that definition. And um, recently, uh, then Attorney General Sessions decided that women who were fleeing domestic violence or intimate partner violence, that they would no longer be considered refugees under U.S. law when they had been for some number of years under both Democratic and Republican administrations. So clearly, the 1951 definition is not sufficient to cover all the people who need help. Unfortunately, if we were trying to change it today, I think it might actually um, end up uh, being a more limited definition rather than a more expansive definition. So what does that mean? I think it means we have to educate each other more, and we also have to look at alternate ways to get people to safety. Are there temporary programs? Are there scholarships? Are there um, different ways of letting people into our country and other countries uh, for a certain time period and then to reevaluate after so, so long. One of the programs that has existed is temporary protected status for people who have um, been in the U.S. when something has broken out in their home country, like a um, natural disaster or a coup, uh, upheaval uh, in the government. And so a lot of those folks, they're here temporarily, but as time goes on, the temporary turns into the midterm and eventually turns into the long term, and their kids are born here, they put down roots. So there ought to probably be some kind of date where there's a trigger that if they're still here and they still can't go home, that we absorb them into our society. Uh, But that's the type of uh, conversation that one could have if one had partners in the White House and in Congress who wanted to be constructive. I think there are members of Congress who want to improve situations, but unfortunately it's not, it's not the prevailing wisdom right now in Washington.
0: Speaking of trying to improve situations, um, from 1987 to 1995, uh, more than 16,000 refugees were resettled in the U.S. through Ronald Reagan's uh, private sector initiative. Uh, Do you think that the U.S. should readopt a private sponsorship model in addition to keeping the current public-private partnerships between PRM and the voluntary agents?
2: What I said when I was assistant secretary Mm -hmm. was a couple things. One is the scale of displacement today, where you have 68 million people who are refugees or internally displaced or in-country seeking asylum, uh, means that we all have to do more. And we can't just rely on the same group of donor countries to lead the response. We need much more uh, involvement from the public, and it would be great if we had much more involvement from the private sector. I mean, the scale of this Mm -hmm. is so daunting that it's really an all-hands-on-deck situation. The other thing to point out is, in terms of resettlement of refugees in the United States, a program that unfortunately has been slashed by uh, the Trump administration, That always was a public-private partnership. It didn't get the kind of publicity that the Canadians got, actually, when they decided to resettle 25,000 Syrians um, after uh, uh, the Trudeau administration came into office. Uh, But it does really rely on um, the cooperation of, charities and employers and landlords and local community to uh, and schools local schools to help families uh, restart their lives in the U.S. very much at the community level Mm -hmm. so that is a public-private partnership that should have appeal to people who are more on the right of the political spectrum it did in the past uh, but it has, uh, you know, really come under fire uh, because of this misinformation about who these folks are and why they're coming here.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I know I learned a lot about refugees and all about your past work as well, but before we let you go, we just have um, our lightning round, which is audience favorite, so just first answer that pops into your head. Um, uh I know. Don't worry, don't worry. They're not hard. Um, nonprofit or government work?
2: Well, for me personally, I've done both, mm-hmm. so I recommend that. Uh, at this point in my life, I think I would like to work in a nonprofit again if, uh, if I'm not teaching here. Mm-hmm. Um, but government work is really, really rewarding, uh, you know, and the Foreign Service, which I did not enter, but I worked alongside a lot of Foreign Service officers, mm-hmm. is a really interesting career. So I, I wouldn't rule either one out, but it is important to know who yourself and whether you think you'd be more comfortable at one extreme or the other or if you want to be a bridge person like me and shuttle back and forth yeah
1: thanks which refugee or migration crisis facing the international community is the most overlooked in your opinion
2: well for a while it was Yemen I would have answered Yemen uh, because it's a crisis that affects so many people and the U.S. has actually been guilty of uh supporting, uh, you know, the bombing of civilians, uh, which is a very serious charge um, through the Saudi-led coalition. Uh, But what's happened is Yemen has gotten a lot of attention. Now, why was it? Was it because advocates kept talking about um, the situation inside Yemen? No, it was because Jamal Khashoggi Khashoggi died, was murdered, it appears, by uh, the Saudi leadership. And uh, that made a lot of leaders in the U.S. re-look at our relationship with the Saudis and look at what they were doing more broadly in the world today. So that's a very strange turn of events for people who care about displaced people and victims of conflict. There's there's not a really positive lesson there uh, that we can take away to get more attention to neglected crises. Uh, if you want, so so Yemen has now gotten more attention. So who's left then not getting the attention it deserves? Well, a lot of crises in Africa. I think you know I've traveled to areas around the Lake Chad Basin and met with uh, Nigerians from northeastern Nigeria who had fled Boko Haram. And then in talking about that, uh, colleagues have pointed out to me, well, because Boko Haram is seen as a terrorist, they do get more attention than say people who are displaced inside and from Central African Republic. So, you know, if we as Americans could somehow build greater ways of linking with and supporting uh, relief and development to Africa, really move beyond relief and tap into and harness the youth and the vitality and the um, promise, the potential of African society, I think that would be a really good thing.
0: Um, and lastly, would you ever go back to the State Department?
2: Well, for me now,
0: um,
2: I'm in a in a nice place because I have my 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 career goal was to work in the State Department, and mm-hmm. I accomplished that, and I kind of uh, overshot the mark, so I don't feel a burning need to go back there. For me, what would attract me is. Um, being asked by someone whom I really respect. You know, there are people you come across in your career who end up being great bosses, and so you really want to uh, say yes to them. Uh, And and in some ways, that's more important than whatever issue they want you to work on. And so I I have had uh, some really great bosses, including Madeleine Albright, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton, and it tickles me to no end that I get to run into um, Madeline Albright every now and then in front of Miller's and uh, <laughs> chat with her uh, here on the Georgetown campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that is a really, really nice um, situation, you know, to mm-hmm. have had her as, a, as a, a, a leader and also as a mentor and um, to, to be able to rub shoulders with her uh, now.
0: Um, so on that positive note, uh, thank you so much for being on the pod with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. And that was Ann Richard. Um, before we let you go, please be sure to follow us on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook fly, um, at fly on the Wall Pod, And we'll see you next week.